Asato ma sadgamaya, tamaso ma jyotirgamaya, mrityur ma amritam gamaya, om shanti shanti shanti. Om, lead us from the unreal to the real, lead us from darkness unto light, lead us from death to immortality. Om, peace, peace, peace. Good morning, everybody. Well, we seem to be overfull today. <laughs> yes. I thought uh, the class was upstairs. When I went upstairs, I saw the whole room uh, full up there. Today is a continuation of our series on Swami Vivekananda's Jnana Yoga. It's the fifth in a series of uh, lectures. And this lecture, which you see, this talk is called Realization, a very happy uh, title. Uh, Swami Vivekananda's original talk uh, given in London uh, was also called Realization. And when you look at, it's included in the Jnana Yoga, when you look at the uh, lecture, you see that uh, it's entirely based on the Katha Upanishad. The Katha Upanishad was probably, not probably, we know for sure, it was Swami Vivekananda's favorite Upanishad. And when we study it, we see why it is so, because it's... Um, it's delightful, it's lofty, it's simple, it's comprehensive. I mean, all the things that we talk about in uh, Advaita Vedanta, Drigdrishya Viveka, the way of the seer and the seen, the Panchakosha Viveka, the way of the five layers of the human personality, all of them are there. Avastatraya, uh, which is the whole of Mandukya Upanishad is concerned with one method only, the analysis of the three states of waking, dreaming, and deep sleep. And that's just one of the things which is taught in the uh, Katha Upanishad. The Katha Upanishad, one attraction is the story of, of course, Yama and Nachiketa. Many of us are conversant with that. A wonderful story with which the Upanishad begins. And Swami Vivekananda, who was a great storyteller. Uh, you see in all the reminiscences of Vivekananda, especially in the West, and in the East also, in India also, uh, people would... A remark on, he was a wonderful conversationalist and a wonderful storyteller. In this talk also, you see, he devotes quite a bit of time to developing the story of Yama and Nachiketa. The story goes something like this, that in the days of yore, in ancient times, there was this very pious Brahmin uh, who conducted a, a religious ritual. In ancient India, the the, what we see as pujas today. In big temples, we have ritualistic worship. The main form of uh, religious ritual was the Vedic fire sacrifice in ancient India. And so one of these, there are many, many kinds of fire sacrifices, and one of these was this one which was performed by this very pious Brahmin who was Nachiketa's father. Uh, his son was Nachiketa. Um, this uh, ritual, it was called the Vishwajit Yagya, um, Yaga. And it involved giving away gifts. Not just any gift, everything that you own. So if you perform this ritual, 
you have to give away whatever you own. That's one of the uh, terms of that ritual. And it's supposed to be productive of great merit. You know, you go to heaven if you, if you uh, do this. So his father was doing it, and Nachiketa, who was a young boy, um, Kumar, as it is mentioned, in, um, he observed what was going on. The ritual was over, and all the guests who had been invited for this big ritual, uh, they were being given gifts. And he noticed something strange. He saw, in those days, real, the form of wealth was cows. So you were a rich person if you had lots of cows. And if you wanted to give gifts, the most uh, precious thing you could give away would be cows. So his, his father is giving everything away and, of course, has to give away all the cows they own. And he noticed, Nachiketa, the little boy, noticed something strange. Uh, his father was giving away all the cows, um, the ones which were old and which did not give any milk and which were basically... And it's like if your neighbor is, neighbor is moving out and suddenly knocks on your door and says, look, I come bearing gifts and all the junk that he's got, he gives, <laughs> it's all yours. And you think the horror <laughs> of it and your neighbor disappears. So, so that's what his father was doing. Um, the Upanishad is very humorous. Um, it says, Pito daka, Pito daka, um, Dugda doha, Jagdhatrina nirindriya, the cows, are those who have drunk water. Drunk water means they have drunk water for the last time. The Jagdhatrina, they have eaten grass for the last time. I mean, they can't even eat anymore. Dugdhadua, they have been milked for the last time, and so on. Now, Nachiketa, it says, Shraddha avivesha, a kind of faith awoke in this little boy. And Swami Vivekananda stresses this uh, strongly. Faith means whether faith in ethical life, a faith in the higher spiritual life, there is something to this. It's not just a mechanical observance of a ritual. Uh, you, one must do it sincerely. Now, as a little boy, he cannot oppose his dad straight away. So what he does is, he asks his father, Father, you are supposed to give everything away. So to whom will you give me? I'm your son, so you're supposed to give me away also maybe? I don't think that was the term of the ritual. You're not supposed to give your kids away, no matter how much you would want to. <laughs> but, uh, and he asked once, his father ignored him, thinking that the boy was being impertinent. And then he asked a second time, and he asked a third time. Upanishad says that, third time. Upon, upon being asked a third time, his father lost his temper. He says, I give thee to death which is a very polite Sanskrit way of saying, go to hell. <laughs> and the little boy said, all right, I'll go. Uh, you've given me to death, so I'm going to um, go to Yama, the lord of death. And uh, this little boy sets off. Don't ask me how. <laughs> he sets off on uh, which flight he took. Now, this is, this is a little uh, gruesome, but I can't... Uh, <laughs> It just came to be, a, I can't just resist this. You know, there was this d d disaster about the, the, the Malaysian uh, air, airways, which they never found. They lost two aircraft, one after another, in two tragic incidents. But one was lost completely. They, never, they haven't found it till now. And you won't believe this. This is all true. They were running an ad at that time. Fly Malaysian and lose yourself. <laughs> Until... <laughs> 
they meant it in all sincerity until somebody noticed <laughs> what was going on and they removed the ad. So I don't know if he took that airlines or whatever, but, but he went to the house of, to the house of death. The little boy, Nachiketa, goes to the house of death. It's, it's very, very dramatically, um, and, and he arrives at the doorsteps of death, and lo and behold, death is not at home. The Lord of Death, Yama, is, he's very busy. Lots of people are dying, so a lot of things to, uh, you know, he, he's on a business trip. So the gatekeepers tell him that he's not at home, go away. But the little boy is so determined. All of these things are indicative of what qualities we need in spiritual life. He, is, he has tremendous determination. He says, I will not go back without meeting death. And he says, stays there one day, two days, three days. He waits three nights. I'm sure they offered him snacks, samosa, or whatever they give at the house of death. But, and and uh, he refused. He sat there for three nights without eating. And then death comes back. Yama, the lord of death, comes back. And his um, minions tell him, um, you know, he says, what's the backlog? What did I miss? Well, there's this little, little, little boy, you know, work piles up. So this little boy waiting for you, and he's very stubborn. He won't go away. Um, and Yama goes to Nachiketa and says, uh, you have waited for me three nights, O revered Brahmin boy. Um, for that, I shall offer thee three boons, you know. He is very pleased with that little boy. Tisro ratrir yadavatsir griheme anashnan brahman atitir namasya namaste astu swastime astu tasmat pratitrin varan vrinishwa. The poetry is beautiful in, in um, the Katopanishad. It's one of the reasons why Swami Vivekananda loved it. Some of the quotes which we are so familiar with, with Vivekananda, arise, awake, and stop not till the goal is reached. It's an adaptation from the Katopanishad. Somerset Mom's The Razor's Edge, which is so famous. It's an adaptation from the Katopanishad. And many other things, many, it's very quotable. So, revered guests who have stayed here for three, uh, three days waiting for me without eating, I offered the three boons to make up for this. Three boons. And the little boy, he's very smart. Nachiketa, he says, all right, first boon. Um, when I go back to my father, sent by you, when, I, when you return me to my dad, so he's so confident, you know, it's very innocent. He has come to the <laughs> house of death. And he says, when you send me back to my father, he should not be angry with me anymore, and he should recognize me, and he should speak with me lovingly. See, it, the touches are so beautiful in the Upanishad, which shows the, the, the psychology of a little child, you know, no matter how rebellious he, how he is, he's still a little boy. And he's unhappy that his father is angry with him. So he wants that his father should love him again. So my father will, will recognize me. Shankaracharya, one of the commentators says, he shouldn't think that I'm a ghost when I go back. And that he will go back, that's, he takes as guaranteed. So he says, when you send me back, and that's also Yama's um, responsibility to send me back to my f father's place. So he has, uh, I think he packed in three or four boons into one. <laughs> when you send me back to my, so coming back from death, and my father will not be angry with me, and my father will speak lovingly with me and recognize me. So all of that into one boon. You can imagine 
Yama, the Lord of Death, this imposing being, smiling, and he says, let that be so. All of it is guaranteed, it's, it's uh, given to you. Then uh, Nachiketa asks a second boon, and he asks, to understand this, we must understand the psychology of the um, medieval, uh, of the ancient Vedic Indians. They strongly believed in heaven, heavens in the plural. So their idea was that there are multiple uh, realms. After death, you go to them, depending on your uh, karmic account, you know, your balance. So if you are a very good person, you go to a higher realm, and a not so good person, a lower realm, and so on. There are multiple heavens, swarga, multiple realms. And to go to these places, you needed to perform Vedic rituals, the yagya, different kinds of yagya. And depending on your ability, the more you perform this, the more you would have merit. Um, and after death, one would uh, presumably go to one of these realms. And what were these realms like? They were refined versions of this world. Swami Vivekananda in his talk, he spends quite a bit of time with, uh, on this in a few pages. Um, what, talking about what one might say is the problem with heaven. The problem with heaven. What could be the problem with heaven? The problem is this. The way it, is con it was conceived in the Karma Kanda, the ritualistic portion of the uh, Vedas, heaven was a refined version of this world. And any refined version of this world would still have the problems of this world. You see, it is, Swami Vivekananda says, it is still matter. Uh, it is sight and sound and touch and smell and taste, maybe much better, maybe much better, but still, it is matter, and we are depending on matter for our happiness. It is a refined pleasure, more and more refined pleasure, maybe unimaginably refined for us, but still, nothing different in degree from this world. And therefore, the problems of this world are also there. The main problem is it all comes to an end. As this world is changing, and it comes to an end at death, the Vedic heavens, they also came to an end, that means, one would go there, and once one's merit is exhausted, karma is exhausted, one would come back again into this world. Um, there would be higher and lower, and presumably jealousy and envy there too. So there were these gods with small g, not capital G, small g devatas, who got different positions or stations in heaven uh, based on their karma in their past lives. Extraordinary beings of luminosity and power and grace, but still beings like us. Uh, and they would again come back to this mortal world. So that was the idea. You earn enough of merit, good karma, go to these heavens, spend some time there, come back again. And Swami Vivekananda says, this is no solution at all. Matter has no solution. The more you uh, dwell on matter, the more materialistic you become, the more you're suffering. One can understand it this way. Look at us. Here we are in one of the most advanced uh, nations of the world in, in Manhattan, in New York. Uh, the, maybe the center of our modern world. Here, here was John Lennon who lived one block down, down from here. I saw a quote by him where he says, why do I live in New York? Because if I lived in uh, ancient times, I would live in Rome. 
And New York is verily the Rome of our times. So here we are. What our modern 21st century world can provide, more or less the best of it, we have it here. Reasonably, how much more can you expect? This is what it is, life, the best of life we can, we can have. With our karma in this life, here we are. Are we happy? Have we found lasting peace and satisfaction? No, a big resounding no. So this idea that by refining our life, which is good, one should refine um, life, more of art and, and science and culture and uh, good causes, uh, better society, good. But to expect it to satisfy the heart is to expect something that it is not designed to do. It's not the fault of matter. It's not the fault of New York or samsara also. It is not designed to give what we want of it. What the spirit wants, the satisfaction, the spirit can be satisfied only by the spirit, not by matter. So this is the problem with heaven. It's an extension of this world only. Here I will make a point, a distinction. There is a conception of heaven, which is a spiritual heaven. In Vedanta, it's called Brahmaloka, the highest heaven, let's say, which is basically the heaven which is in Vaishnava tradition is called Vaikuntha, or in uh, Shaiva traditions, it's called Kailasha. In Shakta traditions, the Devi Loka. So there is a, there is a spiritual heaven, which, which is the Christian heaven or the Islamic heaven. So the religions of the world, when they talk about going to heaven, uh, the, that they mean the highest heaven, which is a spiritual heaven, which is excluded from this kind of analysis, which is really spiritual, which is, which is not a materialistic kind of heaven. And anyway, having said that, this background is necessary because Nachiketa, the second boon he asks for, he asks Yama, the lord of death, what's the best... Um, sacrifice, the fire sacrifice, which can take you to the highest heaven. So one understands why he asked that, that because he comes from that kind of a culture. So that would be the, the greatest secret one, which one could ask for. One might even ask, if he was a spiritual inquirer, why did he want to have this kind of knowledge? Maybe because he didn't want it for himself, because we see what he really wanted, that's in the third boon. But this was for others, maybe. For whatever reason, he asks for the secret of the highest kind of fire sacrifice. And Yama teaches him. And Yama is so, um, so happy with his young student that he says, this sacrifice from now on, what I have taught you, which you will teach the world, um, it, let it be known as the Nachiketa sacrifice. So we get some details of it, not, not much. Then comes the, the actual point of the whole Kata uh, Upanishad. The third boon. So Yama says, so Nachiketa asked for the third boon. And here again, I can't resist. <laughs> Many years ago, about 20 years ago, uh, I was in our ashram in Deoghar, which, which is a school for little boys. And uh, a very senior Swami was visiting. So we decided to have a number of programs, you know, cultural programs to present before, before our this revered guest. And one of the programs was the, a, a play on Yama and Najiketa in Hindi. 
So the dialogues which are in Sanskrit would be translated into Hindi, and the little boys, they would present this play to the visiting Swami and many others. They were teachers and the parents of the students and hundreds of students. Now, unfortunately, the director was a Swami whose confidence was far in excess of his competence. <laughs> so, and the play turned out to be a disaster in all sorts of ways. Uh, for example, uh, one of the Swamis said that play is in Hindi, uh, but in some of the crucial verses, the original Sanskrit should be sung from, I, I will sing it out from the backstage with a harmonium. And the, the Yama and Nachiketa should just stand there, and I, I'm going to sing it out at, at, at that time. And it comes to this crucial time right now, where the third boon, Yama says, ask for the third boon. And there's a beautiful verse. Um, the students stand, waiting for the Swami to sing. And we look around. We are, I was in the backstage. Where's the Swami? He's gone for a washroom break. <laughs> right at that time. <laughs> so disaster after disaster. <laughs> of course, the audience loved it. Because little children, you know, so <laughs> when they're goofing up, everybody's clap, clapping and hooting and <laughs> cheering. And Yama finally asks, um, what I oh, ask for your third boon. What do you want? And somebody from the audience said, shouted from the audience, tell him I don't want anything. We'll be spared this torture. <laughs> <laughs> well, luckily, that didn't happen in the real Kata Upanishad. And uh, Nachiketa asked a very beautiful uh, question. The essential question of human life. This difference, the most important thing, this difference between life and death. Here today, gone tomorrow. That shade which separates the living us from the dead. Where did they go? I know we have all, we have all got theories. Materialism will say there's nothing more. This is the end of it. Religions of the world, all religions say that there is an afterlife. And each religion has its own theory about an afterlife, what happens after death. But all of those are theories. We really directly do not know. So this is the question which the little boy asks Yama. After death, there are these two opinions. Some say, there's nothing. Some say, we go on. There is something. I want to be taught this knowledge by you. Yeyam prete vichikitsa manushye astityeke nayam astitichayke very beautiful. There's some say there are there is something that hap there is that continues after death, and others say there is nothing. It's just the end. I who better to teach me than you? You are the, the Lord of Death, so you know the tr the secret of this. I would want want to be instructed in this knowledge by you. And this, among the boons, this is the third boon that I ask. And immediately, Yama, who was so eager to teach, he withdraws. He says, ask me something else. <laughs> this I will not tell you. So he is going to make it difficult for Nachiketa on purpose. He's testing Nachiketa. Uh, he says, ask me something else. 
Um, I will give you, don't ask for this knowledge. In return, I, uh, instead of this, I will give you wealth. I will give you lordship over this world. I will give you um, a long lifetime. You know, with, he says you can enjoy this with your children and grandchildren, lordship over the earth and tremendous wealth. I will give you pleasures which are in the higher heavens, which your ancestors dwell in. Those pleasures, um, chariots and heavenly damsels and so and so forth, heavenly music, which humans have never, um, have never uh, beheld. They, have never, uh, they can never enjoy this. You will get all of it. But don't ask me about the secret of death. Now, Nachiket, a tremendous temptation. A temptation with a capital T. Nachiketa's answer is instructive. He says, no. Sarvindriyani jarayanti teja, deep insight into the nature of enjoyment. He says, apisarvam alpameva, all of this is very little. Why? Because you exist. One day, I will die, no matter how long I live. No matter how much I enjoy, one day I will die, and at that point it will be all as if nothing. Because you are there. Not only that, how, can, how much can a human being enjoy? All of these wear down the senses, cloy the senses, and, and dull the mind. I'm reminded of Somerset Mom, one line I liked very much. He says, the, the novelist, Razor's Edge, he says, if you chase pleasure single mindedly, very soon you find nothing pleasing anymore. Nachiketa realizes this and he says, uh, humorous. Tavaiva O Lord of Death, keep your chariots, keep your dancing and singing. It, it, let them stay with you. <laughs> I don't want them. I want to know. The, the language is exactly what a rebellious nine or ten year old boy. Keep it. I don't want it. I want this. And Yama is, of course, very pleased with this. Deeply pleased with this. What enabled Nachiketa to say this? Shraddha, a deep faith that there is an ultimate reality worth realizing, experiencing. This realization, he's asking for this. Swami Vivekananda gave, gave great importance on this Shraddha. Notice, a very delicate balancing act. Swami Vivekananda, nobody was more critical, more analytical, more rational than Swami Vivekananda. He said, of course, one must not believe just for the sake of believing. But here, he says, the religions of the world, when they talk about faith and belief, they have a truth here. It's a great, great power uh, to have a deep faith that there is an ultimate reality, that there is God, that there is something beyond death. That what the spiritual traditions of the world are talking about, it's not superstition. It really is. The great spiritual masters are telling us, let that much belief if you have. And after that, not just believing. Then you realize. Then you make it a matter of experience. Otherwise, what happens is, without that much faith, without that much shraddha, spiritual life is not possible. Ethical life is not possible. What Nachiketa is asking for is realization. And this, and this Shraddha makes it possible. Swami Vivekananda, one of the reasons why he liked the character of Nachiketa was this Shraddha. And he wanted um, everybody to, to have this, this kind of a firm faith. 
the way he defined it was very interesting. The old religion says the one who does not believe in God is an atheist. And the new religion says one who does not believe in oneself is an atheist. So this faith in God and faith in oneself, um, what is the connection I used to wonder? And I found it in one of the writings of Mahatma Gandhi. You're celebrating 150 years, Mahatma Gandhi, this year. He writes that um, it is only those who have faith in themselves that they can have true faith in God. Real faith in God, it's possible only if you're, if you're a confident person. Doubt yourself, you doubt God also. This realization, Swami Vivekananda gave great stress on this. If there is a God, I must see God. That's how Narendranath becomes Vivekananda when he goes to Sri Ramakrishna. Have you seen God? And he says, yes. As I see you more clearly and you can see, see God too. So if there is God, I must see God. If I have an immortal soul, I must feel it. So it must be a direct experience for me. Swami Vivekananda says, it is only those who have had this direct experience for whom this realization is a truth that for them, they are truly spiritual. It's, religion is realization. Religion is not a matter of belief. Religion is not a matter of intellectuality. And religion is not a matter of, uh, of just giving assent to something. He goes further and he says that, remember he was talking in, in England, in London in those days, um, the last decade of the 1890s. It is said that there are millions of Christians all over the world. And he says that not one in 20 million is a true Christian. If, if, you have a, if a person were to realize the, the truth of the Sermon on the Mount, he would be perfect immediately. He would be a god. <coughs> he says in India we say there are hundreds of millions of Vedantists. Not one in a thousand is, is, uh, is truly living the life, is really practicing it. If it were so, this world would be transformed. Now here I want to stop and add something. I want to add something here. Which Swami Vivekananda did not touch upon, but I think it's important. When he talks about realization, when he talks about, um, uh, about he, he says religion must be experienced. Now, we take it to mean, and correctly so, that he means mystical experience, uh, seeing God and, and knowing that I'm not the body and mind, a direct experience. But here is a problem. There's a problem with the whole faith, belief, superstition thing. There's a big problem with that. When you say experience, <clears throat> which is better, but there's also a problem with that. The problem is this. People have all sorts of experiences. Some are seeing lights, some are hearing sounds, some are having visions. Now, how do I know that this is a genuine spiritual experience? One characteristic, so I'm Vivekananda points out, if you were genuinely a Vedantist, or genuinely a Christian, the world would be transformed, your life would be transformed first. One, I would find peace and joy. My, I would say that it has given me strength to face the problems of life. It has become the most precious thing in my life. Otherwise, it's just a curiosity. I experience something, especially in this country. Many people come and say, that it's, I think, the effect of the New Age movement, maybe. So there's a competition in getting mystical experiences. I had this experience, I had that experience. I'm not disbelieving you. Remember, it's up to you. It's up to us to judge 
my subjective experience, and we, anybody who's on this path, we will get these experiences, some of it. My subjective experience, <clears throat> how, how useful has it been, or how uh, fulfilling has it been? Has it given me peace? Has it given me strength? Uh, has it made me more unselfish? Has it made me more God-centered and less worldly? If so, valuable experience, true. If not, dismiss it as a curiosity. All right, it happens, so very good. Realization. Swami Vivekananda goes on to say, all this fight between religions is, is basically based on dogma, on doctrine. Religion is not about talk. It's not about, um, he says, one ounce of practice is worth 20 tons of tall talk. It's not about talk. It's only when we make it a question of belief, then it becomes my belief against your belief and let's have a good fight over it. But if it becomes a question of actual experience and transformation of our lives, then they will not be in this fight. This fight between religions will go if religion is understood as spiritual realization, and not believing in something. He goes further on to say that um, the question of ethics, real ethics, morality, that comes from realization. He uses harsh language. Today we are good because we, uh, the, the fear of the police makes us good. Today we are good because the whip of society, of social opinion makes us good. But realization, when we realize our divine nature, then this goodness, morality, will be an expression of our real nature. What I know myself to be, that I'm living. In fact, our morals, our ethics have come from our, the major religions of the world. They are the sources of our, our morals and ethics. Today we may disregard them, but they have, throughout history, it is from religion that we have derived morality. And where did the religions get this morality? It is taught in the scriptures, and it is lived by the saints. It's lived by those who truly realize religion. From their lives we derive what a, what a good life, what a pure life, what a holy life should be like. So that we live when we have realization. And one more thing he says. He says we will have Vivekananda. We will have true faith when we have this realization. Before that, it's just a matter of believing what the books say. My parents and grandparents believe this, so I believe this. My teacher tells me this, so I believe this. My books tell me this, so I believe this. Have you seen God? No. Has your father or grandfather seen God? Has your teacher seen God? No. Then Swami Vivekananda says, then you are as much of an atheist as the most ignorant materialist. Let us admit it. Uh, the atheist is actually honest. Uh, we are as much of an atheist as that person, but because that person is honest and says, I don't believe in God, we, we criticize him and we attack him. Uh, so until we realize God, let us say that we are trying. It is only when we have this realization, Swamiji says, that we will have true faith. Swami Brahmananda said, Spiritual life begins with nirvikalpa samadhi. I don't know what. <laughs> Sri Krishna also says this. Sri Krishna in the Bhagavad Gita, 
He says, I have four kinds of devotees, the people who believe in religion, people who believe in God, people who are in distress, they come to me for help. People who are not in distress, but they want something in life, they come to me. People who are not in distress do not want anything worldly, but they are inquirers, like most of us. We are spiritual inquirers, seekers. They also, are, they also seek God. And then he says, the fourth kind of devotee, the fourth kind of, of the lover of God, is the one who has already realized jnanicha. The enlightened person also loves God. And then he says, all four of them are good. They are blessed because they will all ultimately come to me. But among all four of them, he's a little, God is a little partial. He says, among all of them, the enlightened one is truly my devotee. Is, is, he, I am most dear to that enlightened one, and that enlightened one is most dear to me. Why? The commentators say, because only for this one, this enlightened one, is God real. The others believe they're trying, but God is real for this. So Swami Vivekananda says, realization, after realization comes real faith, real conviction. Then you know that God really exists. Before that, one may truly get confused. Maybe shocks of life. The shallow devotee is shaken by the shocks of life. A death. A beloved person is snatched away. A great desire. I pray to God, pray to God, and God does not fulfill it. Faith gone. God is fired, dismissed, didn't perform. <laughs> He's supposed to work miracles, not doing his job. Or sometimes people lose their faith because of, uh, see, I, I read some very convincing books. Now I believed in God. Now I listen to a lot of Richard Dawkins and Sam Harris and Christopher Hitchens. Now I don't believe in God. It can happen because until we know for sure, um, depending on argumentation and your predispositions, we, we believe in different things. One Swami in the Himalayas gave this nice example. Suppose uh, there's a person who's never seen milk but has read about milk. And he knows that milk comes from cows and it is white. And then some, somebody comes and tells him, yes, what you say about milk is right, but that's only partial knowledge. Milk which comes from white cows is white, but milk which comes from brown cows is brown, and which comes from red cows is red. And from black cows, it's black. This person thinks that sounds very logical. Maybe, yeah, maybe my textbook was incomplete. Um, so that must be it. No matter how logical it sounds, it's not right. Uh, milk is always white, whether it comes from different co colored co uh, uh, cows. There's this, <laughs> kids say the strangest, uh, for the funniest things. It seems nowadays there are interviews for children when they get into kindergarten. <laughs> so this little boy, was interviewed, and there's the teacher, and the counselor, and the psychiatrist, and they interviewed the little kid. And the psychiatrist asked the difficult questions so that to see how the kid is thinking. Tell me, how does um, a brown cow eating green grass give white milk? We, we would be taken aback. The kid immediately shot back. He says, why are you asking me? Ask the cow. <laughs> I hope they admitted the kid. <laughs> yeah. So it's only after realization 
Swami Vivekananda gives a simple and powerful example. If you have seen the sun, no matter if uh, people who cannot see, uh, they say, the blind come and say there is no such thing as a sun. This is a fantasy, it's a superstition. No matter how many people tell you that, you know what you have seen. It, it, it's undeniable. It's even more powerful for those who are enlightened, who have had that breakthrough, that realization. It's undeniable for them. One great teacher in the modern time, uh, he was asked what, um, what is it like to be enlightened? How do you experience Brahman? Is it like a concept or an abstract thing? And this man lived in Mumbai, so he pointed to the sky, Mumbai sky at that time. And he said, sometimes you see the sun and the moon at the same time? Sun on one horizon and the moon on the other? And it was something like that. He said, look there. For me, Brahman is blazing forth like the sun in the sky. And this world, what you call this world, the universe, is like a faint outline like that moon at, in, in, at noontime. And, 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 uh, in the noontime sky. So such a difference. It's so, so how can you say that this person can ever be confused? It's absolutely blazing forth. I remember in the Institute of Culture in Kolkata, there was a conference on spiritual experience. And the scholars were debating about it, and they're giving talks and papers. So there was one scholar who has passed away, now, a wonderful um, uh, old um, pandit, Govinda Gopal Mukhopadhyay, who was in the Institute of Culture, a very great scholar. And like the old-time scholars, you know, very powerful speaker. He, he could had a booming voice which would carry across the whole hall without a microphone. It's something like old-time uh, orators, because they did not have the benefit of a microphone, they could do that. Swami Vivekananda, we hear how he would walk back and forth and speak, and big halls. They had voice training, how to throw their voice. Anyway, so this Govinda Gopal Mukhopata, he took the stage to, give, to talk about spiritual experience. Um, he said, um, he was quoting a particular mystic. So he said, I, I listened to all the presentations and the papers being presented here uh, about the concept of Brahman and the, uh, the pure subject, which is not an object which cannot be experienced. But here is the testimony of a mystic who had a vision of Krishna. No abstraction, he said in his booming voice. No abstraction, no concept, no idea. I clearly see the, the beautiful blue form of Krishna and I can see the waving of the peacock feather and, and, and the flute of Krishna. So such a vivid experience, a devotional experience. He further went on to say, he had, he had a player for the dramatic, I still remember. Um, he grew up in what is now Bangladesh as a little boy. He said, I, the lady next door, she used to have these mystic experiences almost daily. And I would go and play. I was a little boy. I would go and play. This Pandit is saying, not me. This scholar, Govinda Gopal Mukhopadha. I used to go and play in their house. And uh, the lady, she was like an aunt. So she, she really loved me. She would bathe me and feed me and comb my hair. I would go to sleep on her lap. And she had these experiences. I grew up seeing a person being absolutely transformed by these extraordinary mystical experiences. 
I grew up playing with her, being fed by her, bathed by her, sleeping on her lap. And the world today knows her as Anandamayima. <laughs> so he was very dramatic that way. <laughs> so that is that realization Nachiketa was asking for. Now what did Yama say? Now Yama is very pleased with his student and then starts the teaching. The teaching starts pretty late in the Kata Upanishad. What does he say? That there is this Atman. You are right. It survives death. It, it, it is neither born, the body is born. It neither dies, the body dies. Na jayate mriyateva kadachit na kaschit na babhuva he says, it is unborn, it does not, it is not born, it does not die. Um, it has no cause. That means it is not produced by something else. Little kid's question. Who created this world? Finally, you'll end up by saying, oh, God created it. And the kid can always ask, who created God? That means not from anything has this one been born. And nothing is born of it. There's a whole philosophy here. The whole philosophy of Mandukya beyond causality is in this little line that it has no cause and it has no effect. It is one reality. Then what is all this we see? The, the, the implication is that all of this which we see is an appearance in that, not separate from it. Anyway, that's a very profound discussion. Non-causality, it's just mentioned here. The unborn, ajaha, eternal, nitya, uh, undecaying, shashvata, purana, ancient. And it is not killed, it is, it is not killed when the body is killed. Sri Krishna uses these very, uh, these very verses from these very mantras from the Kata Upanishad in the Bhagavad Gita. In some of the most well-known, if, if you know the Bhagavad Gita, this will sound very familiar. Actually, Sri Krishna is quoting the Kata Upanishad. And why just Sri Krishna? Down to our own age, um, Emerson, Ralph Waldo Emerson, Phil Goldberg, who wrote the book, American Veda, he was here last week. So he says, Emerson can be rightly called the, the brain of, of America, the mind of uh, America, while Thoreau can be called the heart of America. And both of them drew inspiration from Vedanta. Emerson's poem, Brahma, I'll just read it out to you. See if you can recognize it. It, it's, it's directly from the Kato Upanishad. If the red slayer thinks he slays, or if the slain think he is slain, they know not well the subtle ways. I keep and pass and turn again. The next mantra in the Kato Upanishad, um, it says, Hanta chet manyate hanti, hatas chet manyate hatam, if the slayer thinks that he slays, if the slain thinks I am slain, neither know, neither know the truth. This is this the self, 
which um, Yama is teaching Nashiketa, it is neither slain nor, slay, um, uh, nor a slayer. We'll suddenly think, why such violent language? Slayer and slain. It fit very well with the Kurukshetra war, which um, Krishna is talking about. But what it means here is doer of an action and the action itself. So it's neither an agent of action nor the object of an action. It, it is beyond action. The poem is very beautiful. Far or forgot to me is near. Shadow and sunlight are the same. The vanished gods to me appear. And one to me are shame and fame. They reckon ill who leave me out. It's so beautiful and profound. They reckon ill who leave me out. That's the state of being not, not realizing, of being unenlightened. They reckon ill who leave me out. When me they fly, I am the wings. I am the doubter and the doubt. Is any of this true? This doubt, this itself is, is Brahman, this, this consciousness here. I am the hymn the Brahmin sings. The strong gods pine for my abode. So here is a reference to the Vedic idea of heavens. What we are talking about is far beyond those heavens. The strong gods pine for my abode and pine in vain the sacred seven. But thou, meek lover of the good, find me and turn thy back on heaven. Turn thy back on heaven. What he means is you can easily understand from the Katopanisha uh, uh, context. But it got Emerson into no end of trouble. I think he was banned from Harvard for 20 years or something like that when he gave his talk. Because uh, they immediately misunderstood that uh, the whole point is to go to heaven. Is it turn your back on heaven? What does it mean? But why is it so difficult to experience this, to realize this, if this is our very own self, beyond death, immortal consciousness? The Upanishad says, it's because our awareness is turned outwards. We see outside, we hear things, uh, taste and smell and touch. Our senses flow outside. Very beautiful poetry. Paranchikhani vyatrinat swayambhu tasmat parang pasyatinantaratman kaschid dhira pratyagatmanam aikshat avritta chakshur amritatvam ichchan our senses are turned outwards. They have been designed in such a way. It's meant to give us knowledge from the external world. But we keep on flowing outward with the senses and therefore we do not see the inner self, which is the subject, not an object. But a rare one, Kaschid Dhira, a rare heroic spiritual seeker, what does this person do? Realizes the inner self, this, the pure subject. Consciousness, not an object. Pratyag Atmanam Aikshat realizes the inner self. Pratyag means inner. How does this person realize the inner self? Avritta Chakshur literally means covering the eyes or turning inwards. Not being so extroverted. Turning inwards. Avritta Chakshur. Why would this person do it? What is the goal? Amritattva Michan. Desiring immortality. Desiring imm That is the goal. We are trapped in this wheel of birth and death. Uh, of sorrow and suffering, to go beyond this, this darkness, this, this strife, constant strife. This is the purpose of Vedanta. And this is the spiritual seeker attains this by realizing the inmost self. 
What is that this person realizes? So the, the, a very beautiful technique is given in the Kato Upanishad. The famous chariot analogy. The Kato Upanishad is full of so many treasures. I mean, we could go on and on talking about it. One of the famous ones is the, the chariot example, where the human personality is compared to a chariot. And life is compared to a spiritual journey. Atmanam ratinam vidhi shariram ratam evatu buddhim tu sarathim vidhi manaf pragraham evacha. You are the passenger in the chariot. You means the atma, the real self, the real, real us. We are the passenger. And the body, what is the chariot? What's the car? What's your SUV? The body. So immediately see with this example, if you hold on to the example, a little gap opens up between you and your body. I am not the body, no more than I am my um, Toyota or Honda. So the body is the chariot, I am the passenger. And then further develops the analogy example further. The intellect, the faculty of understanding uh, is the driver. You are not even the driver. You are, you are very rich. You have a chauffeur to, a flunky to, to drive you around town. So your, the intellect is the driver. Again, notice something. If the intellect is the driver and you are the passenger, then you are not the intellect either. Even the, the faculty of understanding, which we are using now, hopefully, to understand this, this is also an instrument. It's not you. And the mind, he says, the mind is the reins by which you hold the horses, which are powering the chariot. So mind is the reins, the by which you control this, bod this body. And then it develops it further. Indriyani hayanahu vishayan steshu gocharan atmindriya mano yuktam bhuktityahur manishina The wise say, the Horses are the senses. The five sense organs are your horses. And they're objects. For the eyes, sight. For the ears, sound. Smell and taste and touch. These are, these are the, this is the road, the track on which they run. So the horses run on this. And in combination with all of this, with the intellect, which is the driver, with the body, which is the, which is the chariot, with the mind, which is the reins, and the, the senses, which are the horses. All of this, in combination with you, the passenger, bhokta itiyahu, you are called the, the, the experiencer. It's sometimes translated as enjoyer, but pleasure and pain, both are experienced. So this person which we consider ourselves to be is actually a limitation of our real self. I, the infinite consciousness, now, limited by a body, by this intellect, by this mind, by these senses, now I am this jiva, this sentient being, the bhokta. And I have to reach my goal, which is enlightenment, realization. How will I reach it? At every stage, the sadhana, the spiritual practices, the senses have to be trained. Ill-trained senses are like the, the uh, uncontrolled horses. They will take the charioteer, and the passenger to ruin, crash, 911. And the mind has to be trained. He says, Samanaska, 
long time before today we have the mindfulness revolution literally the same word mindfulness the mind has to be alert mindful and intellect the driver has to be well informed vigyanavan well informed means spiritual knowledge plenty of kathopanishad has to be there in the at the intellectual level this awareness the intellect has to be aware that i the passenger i am the passenger i am not the intellect that knowledge is also in the intellect only and there is difference so the the driver has to know has to have a good gps you know won't won't work if in crucial times no reception no, no. <laughs> then it'll be, you'll get confused so a good gps the driver has and then only this this person the you will realize you will reach the goal the goal is actually not far away though the example is given like you are going in a chariot to a long distance it's an example but if you think about it the goal is you yourself your real self from the smallest self to the capital s self i was just thinking today when um, we used to teach trainee teachers back in uh, india there was a teachers training college so the principle of teaching good teaching is from the known to the unknown so when you talk to students you should start with where the students are what they know and then take them step by step to the unknown from the near to the far from what is near them to what you want to teach them far from what is to what shall be what is right now what is their condition and what you want to take them to that that far condition that next step but if you apply it to vedanta what it becomes is it's not uh, from the near to the far it's from near to the nearest because it is you yourself upanishad says nearer than the nearest and uh, then it is not from unknown uh, to unknown it is from known to the very heart of knowledge which is consciousness and it is not from what is to what shall be it is to the reality what is actually the heart of what is existence sat so uh, it it is very interesting if you think about it that way and then the upanishad gives you the panchakosha viveka notice how the layers of the human personality are also indicated by this chariot example body the chariot um the senses the horses and the reins the mind the intellect the dr- the driver and the passenger and the passenger is clearly different from all of them and so the whole purpose the technique which is taught here uh, in in, in um, by yama teaches nachiketa is to transfer the reference of the i of the i of the ego from the body mind complex from the chariot driver uh, reins and horses to the passenger what it means is when i say clock a word a word means something so when i say clock clock is a word it refers to an object this one when i say cloth is a word it refers to an object this one when i say body it refers to an object this one when i say i what does it refer to normally immediately we say i means here i am this is who i am we normally refer to the body mind this example shows us that what we normally refer to by the word i by the term i is the chariot the driver the ma- the, the reins the horses 
But what we should be referring to is the passenger. It's like the passenger has forgotten himself or herself and has become completely identified with the surrounding vehicle. So this difference, this shifting of the reference of the I, pancha kosha viveka, that is done. Avastatra viveka, the, the method of the three states of waking, dreaming, and deep sleep. All of them, they are found in uh, the Katopanishad. Yama teaches all this to <coughs> Nachiketa. The self itself, it's described in extraordinary terms, very glorious terms in, in the Katopanishad. You are this pure consciousness beyond any attribute. Nirguna Brahman. Aham Brahmasmi that is shown there. Um, one of the mantras is Ashabdam asparsham arupam arupam abhyayam tatharasam tatharasam nityam agandhavachayat tatharasam anadhyanantam 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 mahatavparam dhruvam nijayatan mrityu mukhat pramuchyate Ashabdam, asparsham, arupam. It is beyond sound. It is, it, 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 it is beyond form. It is beyond taste. It is beyond the senses of smell. So all the five senses, they cannot objectify it. Which means the true self, you, the passenger, you are not an object. What does it mean? It gives your, tec it gives your technique a clue into investigating yourself, into this inward journey. If it is anything that you experience, it's not the Atman. When you ask this question, who am I, and look at your experience right now, it is available to you. The real Atman, pure self is available to us all the time. But when you look at yourself right now, when you ask this question, who am I, if, it is the, if the answers which keep coming one after another, if you experience it, then it's not the real self. If it's an object, I ask, who am I? Here. But am, is it an object, the body? Yes. Then it's not the Atman. The breath. Did I experience it? Yes. Otherwise, the whole mindfulness industry will disappear. <laughs> you focus on the breath, the breathing in and breathing out. Yes, it's an object. You are asked to be mindful of the breath. But what Yama is saying, did you experience the breath? Are you mindful of it means, is it an object to your awareness? Yes. Then it is not the self. Well, you, didn't, I, you might say, I didn't think that the um, breath was, I am the breath. All right, let's go deeper. The thoughts in the mind. The thoughts, feelings, emotions, memories. Do we experience those? Do we experience our thoughts and feelings? Of course we do. When we introspect, we feel. I am happy, I feel it. I remember, I feel it. It's on the tip of my tongue, I can't recall. I feel it. Therefore, memory and thoughts and emotions, they all are objects, not me, not the real self. Go deeper. The intellect itself, the one which is trying to understand right now, which seems the closest to me, is it me? Yes, I feel it. I feel this intellect. When I don't understand something, I feel it. When I understand something, I make that breakthrough, the aha moment, I feel it. If I feel it, it's not you. It, it, it's, it's not the uh, Atman. Go further. 
Swami, if I go any further back, it's just a blank. Do you feel the blank? Yes. Then it's not you. That which feels the blank but cannot be felt. That is you. Mahatav Param, beyond the intellect, transcending the intellect, and which is not an object to the intellect, which is not an object for the mind, which is not an object for the senses. That consciousness, it's nothing, it's not nothing. That blank is nothing. The witness of that nothing is not nothing. After all, you experience the nothing. Who experiences the nothing? Don't try to make it an object. It is your real nature. The pure subject. Beyond beginning and beyond any end. Anadi anantam. Nityam. Dhruvam. Unchanging. Atman. More confidently we should say, I am that. I am the pure subject. I am without beginning, without end. The body has a beginning and an end. Each breath has a beginning and an end. And all the breaths that this body will take has a beginning and an end. One day it will stop breathing. Thoughts have beginning and end. Even memory has beginning and end. But they all appear to me, I, the pure subject of the nature of awareness. How did you know it's awareness, if you ask? Because you are aware. Because you are having experiences. It must be of the nature of awareness. This pure, pure consciousness. Pure in what sense? I'm not saying pure in the sense of bad or good. Pure, impure, not in that sense. Pure means consciousness minus object. <coughs> consciousness itself. This consciousness minus object is the pure consciousness, is our true nature. I am that. Nijayatan mrityu mukhat pramuchyate. Realizing this, where here itself, now itself, in the body and mind complex which you thought you, you were till now. In the vehicle. Find the passenger. And knowing that, go beyond death. Escape, literally it means escape from the jaws of death. Mrityu mukhat pramuchyate. You're eternally free from death. Escape means you, once you find that, you realize, I, that consciousness, I am never born, I never die, I can never die. Death is an appearance. It plays in my light. I am not uh, subject to death. So you realize you're already pre-existing immortality. Mrityu mukhat pramuchyati. And mrityu, death. Shankaracharya in his commentary says, avidya kama karma. Death is not just the death of this particular body. It's a, it's a classic phrase which he's very fond of. Ignorance, desire, and karma. I'm not aware of my real nature. And therefore, I become identified with the body-mind. Who am I? I am a Toyota. We may laugh, but that's exactly what we are doing. I am an SUV. Or, if I happen to be particularly ancient, I am a Ford Model T. <laughs> Rare these days. No, you're not. You may be sitting in one, driving one, but... That's what, we become identified with that. Once I see, I see the difference between me and that, I realize my immortal nature. Mrityu mukhat pramuchyate. So being identified with that body-mind, I start thinking, I am that, and all my decisions become subject to this, this misconception. Once I think I am that, now what do I need? 
I need oil. I need uh, a change of a wheel. I need a new coat of paint. Why? There's this uh, funny science fiction story a long time ago, in 1950s, a report on planet three, a report on planet four. A flying saucer comes and uh, they, are, they find a new planet and they're sending a report back to their home planet. We found a planet with uh, intelligent life. And he describes, the alien describes intelligent life. The life of this planet consists of shiny metal beings with four wheels and doors. And they, they race about um, the ways of this, um, this world. And they have servants, which are bipedal, they are, whom they carry within themselves. And these servants spend their lifetimes taking care of these powerful beings. Uh, they polish the beings and they feed these beings. Uh, so the alien, watching from outer space, thought that the, uh, the cars must have seen United States, you know, in that time. So the cars were the real uh, masters of this world. And the human beings were just the servants who were used by the cars to, to, you know, to serve them and take care of them. That's what has happened to us. Mrityu mukhat pramuchyate. Once we realize who we are, then we realize this body and mind is like a container. Purusha, another term used in Kathopanishad. Purusha literally means a living being or sentient being. In Kathopanishad, two meanings are given. One is Purishayanat Purushaha, the conscious being who resides in this city of nine gates. So the sense organs are called the nine, the organs are called the nine gates. But in this body resides consciousness, that is Purusha. Or Sarvam Purayeti Purusha. Consciousness which pervades everything, that is Purusha. So when we realize ourselves as the Purusha, not the body and not the mind, then we see we are free of death. What is the benefit of this knowledge? What good does it do? The Katopanishad gives, um, say, three, let us say. We just pick up three. Dhruvam adhruveshu amritatvam hi viditva dhruvam adhruveshu naiha prarthayante having realized one's immortal nature, this pure consciousness within, the enlightened ones do not ask for anything in this world. They are satisfied with everything. Everything is a play of this one consciousness. For them, everything is the same. Same, same one, one Brahman, one consciousness appearing in all these ways. So they do not ask for anything in this world because nothing of this world, can, you, we neither need it nor is it required for us, our true nature. So one goes beyond desire. This whole, the way the Buddha, Buddha uh, analyzed this whole problem. Dukkha, sarvam dukkham. All is suffering. And what is the cause of suffering? Trishna, desire. One goes beyond desire when one realizes the eternal one within my, my real nature. In another way, another result of this uh, realization, the Kathopanishad, it is said, vidwan um, nashochati. Having realized the immortal self within, the enlightened one does not sorrow, does not grieve. Our true nature is immortal. What are we sorry about? All that we think we lose outside, they're all manifestations of yours. So you do not grieve for anything that you lose in a dream. You realize, I alone am appearing in those ways. 
So this idea of the divinity within and the oneness of this universe, this is what we realize. This realization takes you beyond sorrow. You really, in a deep sense, you see there is nothing to be uh, sorrowful, miserable about. And a third result is given, tatona vijugupsate. It's a term used again and again in the Upanishads. The enlightened one does not seek to protect himself or herself. When did, do we see to, seek to protect ourselves? When we think we can die, we can be harmed, we have, it's possible to lose something. But realizing our nature as immortal, non-dual consciousness, Shankaracharya says, why should this one try to protect oneself? Because one cannot die. One knows one is perfectly safe forever, the real nature, the passenger, not the car. The car can be wrecked, but the passenger is perfectly safe forever. Airbag or something, I don't know. So the passenger is perfectly safe forever. And from whom will you seek to protect? Very interesting. This consciousness is non-dual. So there is no second entity apart from you. The world that we see is a play of this consciousness alone. From whom will you protect? Look at it in both ways. One is, this world is an appearance, an illusion, maya. If it is not there, do you seek to protect yourself from the monsters of your dreams? No, you don't. You know they don't exist. They don't exist. I'm being chased by a ghost or something terrible, a monster, and I wake up. Do I jump out of bed and try to hide under the bed? No. I realize it wasn't there at all. So if the world, the entire world is an appearance, there's nothing to protect myself from. There's no harm at all. Nothing is going to happen. It's just special effects, Hollywood. (laughs) Or the same truth can be seen in another way. If you don't like this approach of the world is an appearance or a dream or maya, look at it in another way. The world is nothing but I myself. We alone appear as our own world. Brahman, not the Atman, appears as the entire world. The, dr- the passenger alone is now appearing as the driver and, and the car and, and the, enti- the road and this entire universe. From whom will you try to save yourself from? Because it's all you. Whom will you blame? If the teeth bite the tongue, who's going to curse whom or who's going to punish whom? We are one reality. So tatona vijugupsati. One goes beyond, um, one goes beyond desire, karma. One goes beyond sorrow, shoka, and one goes beyond fear, tatona vijugupsati. This is the effect of realization, and it's possible here and now in this life. I'll co- end with a quote from Vivekananda himself, who ended this uh, talk with a, a very inspiring uh, statement. He says, I always cling to the one idea proclaimed with one voice by, by the Christ, the Buddha, and Vedanta, that in time we will all come to this perfection. But to come to this perfection, we must give up this imperfection. For, he says, for this world is nothing. At best, it is a hideous caricature, an appearance, an an appearance of the reality. And this reality is what we must realize. This, renunci- this realization is possible through renunciation. 
You know, you give up the object, give up the, uh, the turn away from the object, turn away from the impermanent, turn away from the outside into the inside and realize the pure subject, the consciousness, the, the spirit within. When we realize that, he says, we will find the reality within and that reality we will know as God. And this God, which we will, which we will realize, is always with us is always within us. Live in this God. Take your stand in this God. In, in God. Take, live, he says actually, live with him. Take your stand with him. Take your stand in him. The only true life is the life of the spirit, is the life in God. This is the only true joy that there is. I was, when I read that, I found amazingly his master, Sri Ramakrishna, in the Gospel of Sri Ramakrishna, he says, here is my final opinion. After enlightenment, live with God, devotion, and the devotees of God. In Bengali, he said, Bhakti bhakto bhagavan niye thaka ei pakamot. Pakamot means the final opinion, the final uh, recommendation. And Swami Vivekananda ends his beautiful talk by saying, the after realization, we live in the, the life of the spirit is the only true life worth living. Living in God is the only true life worth living. And we must all try to attain to this realization. Om Shanti 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 Hari Om Tat Sat Shri Ram Krishna Rupanamastu